Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 36. This is the fifth chapter in the Elihu portion of the narrative. In chapter 35, Elihu was attempting to address two questions that he believes that Job has raised. Question number one was, what is the value in being good? He believed that Job had basically called into question the fundamental fairness and reasonableness of the universe and of God, by logical extension. In responding to Job's question, which Job never actually asked in those terms, Elihu made God appear distant and disinterested. He basically exaggerated the transcendence of God and made him unaffected and uninvested in human righteousness, which of course we know isn't true because of the drama that we observed in chapters 1 and 2. The second question that Elihu believed Job to be asking was some version of the question, why doesn't God answer prayer? In answering this question, he puts a terrible burden upon Brother Job. He basically says that Job, like so many people, only calls out to God in times of crisis and out of blatant self-interest. And therefore, Job has no right to expect God to pay attention to prayers like that. I think it would be fair to say that chapter 35 gives us the absolute worst of Elihu. And chapter 36 gives us the absolute best of Elihu. Such is the complexity of the book of Job. In fact, Francis Anderson, who's very critical of Elihu in chapter 35, says here, Job 36, 1 to 21, is a more mature and engaging statement of orthodox theology than anything found elsewhere in the book. This concluding statement contains Elihu's best and most distinctive ideas, closed quote. I think part of why chapter 35 was so hard to read, so filled with meanness, it felt, is, is simply because it was overtly polemical in nature. Elihu was responding and attempting to rebut things that he believed Job to have been saying. He, he was in debate mode. He was attempting to defend God from accusations he believed Job to have been making. And by and large, we tend not to be at our best when we are defending. We tend to push back and to exaggerate and to counter-strike. And all of that is on display in chapter 35. Whereas here in chapter 36, Elihu is speaking more generally about some of the purposes that he believes may be at work within experiences of personal suffering. And what he says is actually quite profound. He's able to move past a merely punitive perspective. He's capable of seeing more than rewards for good behavior and punishment for bad behavior. He, he talks about how suffering can be used by God to educate, refine, prepare, and even convert men and women. He also seems to say that the purpose in suffering is somewhat contingent upon the attitude of the person experiencing it. If you're stubborn and resistant, it may become punishment. It may function in that way. But if you are humble and pliable, it may lead to growth, blessing, and promotion. It all depends on how you receive it. 
Again, that's not the whole truth, but it is probably the most advanced perspective we have encountered thus far. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. I mentioned back in chapter 34 that it seems like the crowd was growing restless and and maybe even beginning to depart. They had come to hear from Job. They'd come to hear from the three famous wise men. But who was this young whippersnapper demanding their attention? Elihu is here again, seeming to to beg that they stick around for a few more minutes and and hear just a little bit more of what he has to say, right? Bear, Bear with me a little. I have something to say. Truly, my words are not false. Now, to grab their attention, or maybe he actually believes it, he, he says that he gets his knowledge directly from God. His words have a peculiar perfection about them because they are, in a special sense, he believes, the very words of God. Now, we'll talk about this again at the end of his speech after chapter 37, but we need to remember here that Elihu is claiming a sort of charismatic authority. He's saying that he speaks for God. He claims to have had dreams that give him special insight and understanding. But we know that isn't the case because we know what is actually going on. Tremper Longman III summarizes usefully here, saying, Elihu, in short, attributes to God thoughts that are only his own, closed quote. And that's part of the message in the presentation. The book of Job, as it is arranged, seems to be making the point that if we can't find answers through processes of reason and rationality, we sometimes fall back upon mysticism and spiritualism. But at the end of the day, the wise old men and the young charismatic are all saying the same thing. And none of them are actually telling the whole truth. The whole truth will not be discovered until Job hears the word of the Lord. As I said, we'll talk about that a little more at the end of Elihu's speech. For now, it is enough to know that he's losing the audience and claiming for himself extraordinary authority that comes directly from a mystical revelation from God. Verse 5, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Here, Elihu reaffirms his essentially proverbial view of the world. God brings the wicked down to the dust, but he keeps his eye on the righteous to prosper and establish them. But then in verse 8, he admits some short-term aberrations to this general pattern. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction... Then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Here, Elihu admits that God may use some forms of suffering as a sort of communication tool, as a sort of 
refinement technique. He, he may allow certain setbacks so as to communicate that a person is veering close to arrogance and self-sufficiency. He opens their ears to instruction and calls them back to humility, piety, and duty. Assuming they respond appropriately, he quickly restores them. But if they do not, he begins to treat them as their stubborn wickedness deserves. Now, in verses 13 and following, he talks about those people who do not respond to these various corrections. He says, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. So, if you don't respond to these corrections, if you become angry at God and, and you resent his parental interventions, then you'll end up in shame, face down in the muck and mud with the sinners. Tremper Longman III says about this line of reasoning, of course it is true that God can use suffering in this way, but not all suffering, and certainly not Job's, can be so diagnosed. Closed quote. I think that is true, and, and I think that is a helpful lens for us in reviewing this entire section of Elihu's speech. Most of what Elihu says here in this chapter is true. Some of it gloriously true, but none of it actually applies in the case of Job. God isn't correcting or parenting Job here. That's not what's going on. This isn't about shaving off the rough edges of his arrogance and self-reliance. We know from having been let in on the drama of chapters 1 and chapter 2 that something else entirely is happening in the case of Job. So we should listen to what Elihu is saying, all the while being cautioned in our application of these truths in any sort of pastoral situations we may encounter. Verse 15, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Let's just pause here and appreciate that verse. That is, in my opinion, the high water mark in this entire section. Hear that verse again. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. That's a good verse right there. You, you could em embroider that verse onto your bed sheet if you are so inclined. You could get that printed on a t-shirt. You can put it on a coffee mug. You do whatever you like with that verse. Usually you have to be very careful about doing that with verses in Job because so much of what is said is, isn't true or it's true but not applicable or it's not entirely true or it's missing something. But here we're on very solid ground. This isn't what is happening with Job, but it is what God does with people in the Bible all the time. King David, for example, says, Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He says again, Psalm 119, 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So David is saying that he was like one of the people spoken of by Elihu. He was going astray. He was becoming conceited. He was starting to lose the plot. So God used some carefully measured affliction to open David's ear to divine instruction. God rattled his cage. He literally put the fear of God into him. 
and set him back on the straight and narrow. God does that, David says, and it's been wonderfully helpful in my life, just as Elihu is suggesting here. John Calvin also loved this section of Elihu's speech. In his sermon on this passage, he asked, What is the purpose of our afflictions? It is to make us feel our sins. And it is a very noteworthy point from which we can gather a mighty useful doctrine. For in time of prosperity, we are blind. In fact, we shall not know rightly what is contained here unless God brings us to it by his chastisements. Are we at our ease and in our delights? Every one of us falls asleep and flatters himself in his sins so that our prosperity is like drunkenness putting our souls to sleep. You see then that men cannot feel their sins if they are not driven by force to know themselves. Therefore, seeing that prosperity makes us so drunken after that matter, and that when we are at rest, every man flatters himself in his sins, we must suffer patiently that God should afflict us. For affliction is the true school mistress to bring men to repentance in order that they may condemn themselves before God and being condemned, learn to hate their faults in which they previously bathed. Closed quote. Did you hear that? Affliction is the true school mistress to bring men to repentance. It teaches them to hate their faults in which they previously bathed. Now, as a pastor, I can tell you for a fact that this is very often precisely how God works in the heart of a man. And, and men in particular, if I may say, many men are proud. They think they're doing fine. They don't want any advice. And then their marriage breaks up. Or their kids get addicted to drugs. Or their business goes belly up. And all of a sudden, they're made to see the truth of who they are. And they come to hate their faults in which they had previously bathed. And they repent. And they get saved. And they walk with a limp. But they walk with the Lord. Thanks be to God. That is often the reason for affliction though not here. Verse 16. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Here, Elihu is saying that Job is so concerned with his own quest for justice and fair treatment that he is in danger of scoffing and speaking out of turn. An assessment which hits pretty close to the mark, actually. Verse 19. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, 
For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Here, Elihu is warning Job against trying to run from the process. God knows what he's doing. Instead of complaining about what you have received, spend your energy seeking out the lesson and the learning opportunity within it. Again, that would be perfect counsel in almost every conceivable scenario. Just not here. Not specifically. There is actually no lesson for Job to learn in this situation. That isn't actually what's going on. But as I said, in almost every other conceivable situation, it would be, it might be, and and it would be great advice. Verse 24, remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great. We know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable for he draws up the drops of water and they distill his mist in rain which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At the end of... This section of the speech, Elihu counsels consideration and worship of God's majesty. Instead of complaining, you ought to be thankful for who God is and for what God does to shape and fashion us. And again, that is true. In fact, it sounds a lot like what we read in the book of James in the New Testament, in James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy! My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yes, understood properly, affliction can be cause for joy. It can be cause for song. But we would also want to point out that Songs of lament are found in the Bible, too. We think of Psalm 88, for example, which says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. That sounds exactly like what Job has been saying all along. And here it is, as a song, as a prayer right in the Bible. So again, I guess the thing is, you got to figure out which song you're in. Are you in the, the, the song that Elihu says that Job should be singing? The, the one that we see exampled in James chapter 1? The, the one where you're just thankful that God has sent an affliction that's teaching you character and that's giving you good lessons? Or are you in this song, the, the sort of Psalm 88 psalm, where you don't have a clue what is going on, but it doesn't feel right to you? 
I think the point is that there's room for both of those songs. According to the Bible, they're, they're both in the Bible. So, again, I think we would want to take from this chapter a bit of a caution in our caregiving efforts with hurting people. We would want to suggest that they consider whether or not there is a, a preparatory or educational purpose in their suffering. Is God opening your ear by this affliction, brother or sister? Is he pulling you back from a dangerous course of action? If, if so, then receive that. Make the necessary changes and then sing a song of praise to the Lord for his wonderful care for you. But we should remember that not all affliction serves this purpose. So we should be cautious in making our diagnosis. And we should leave plenty of room for lament and even complaint. Hurting people have a right to cry out to God. And he isn't nearly as far off as Elihu has suggested. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.